You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Jim Eisenreich is a former 15-year Major League Baseball player with five different clubs. He had a career 290 batting average and an OPS of 746. He was an above-average hitter, fielder, and runner. And interestingly, his 405 batting average and 620 slugging percentage against the Los Angeles Dodgers in his career ranks among, among the most successful of any one player against any team. Although he was a rising star with his original team, the Minnesota Twins, Eisenreich went on the voluntary retirement list for two seasons to deal with Tourette syndrome. He learned how to deal with the symptoms and he came back to baseball. In 1990, he was the first recipient of the Tony Conigliaro Award given annually to a major league baseball player who has overcome a significant obstacle in his life. Today, he runs the Jim Eisenreich Foundation for Children with Tourette Syndrome, whose goal it is to help kids with TS to achieve personal success. So Jim, welcome to Sports Connections. Thank you, appreciate it. Let's start with baseball. When did you know that you had the ability to play baseball professionally? You know, well, in my mind, I always did. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it was probably not until my third year of college. Um, you know, things things changed uh, from my junior or my sophomore to junior year. Our team was pretty good. I had a teammate who was a senior um, and a really good ball player. And scouts were talking to him. and we both ended up having pretty good uh, final college seasons, even though that was my junior year. And so that's kind of when I had a, like a little inkling that, well, maybe I do have a chance. You know, I, I really didn't think so before that, but that wasn't even in my thought. You know, I was going to school to go to school. Um, baseball was just a fun extracurricular activity. And, and yeah, I dreamed about things, but, you know, they weren't real to me. Right. Who, who was that teammate? It was Bob Hegman. Actually, um, Bob uh, actually lives in the Kansas City area also. Um, it's, it's kind of funny with him. Uh, we were college teammates, uh, roommates, and um, Bob was one of those guys that he graduated from college in four years. So every time we're on the bus, I always make a joke about this, but uh, every time we're on a bus going to the next city for our games – He's doing his homework and the rest of us are on a bus fooling around sleeping or playing cards or whatever we do. And anyway, so Bob was, he was a good friend. He still is. Um, Anyway, luck would have it after our season was over. It's it's kind of a funny story with Bob, but we won our final conference tournament, um, which is where there were a number of scouts. This is Bemidji, Minnesota. So we're up in the Northland and, you know, you, you don't see a lot of baseball people up there, but right. um, this is 1980 also, 40 years ago. <laughs> um, after the game was over, a scout came up and talked to Bob and asked him, which is what they did in those days, would you be interested in playing professional baseball? Hmm. And of course, Bob, a senior, going to graduate, so yeah, I'd love the chance. And then he asked, what about your teammate Eisenreich? He's only a junior. And my friend Bob says, well, you know what? He's right over there. You can ask him. He can talk. And so the scout came and asked him the same question. Are you interested in playing professional baseball? One of the easiest questions I ever asked. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, and so and, and we didn't really know what was happening. This is about two weeks before the June draft. And so Bob and I worked out and we kind of had an idea that we're going to we may get a chance. And sure enough, uh, I was drafted by the 
Twins in the 16th round. Bob was actually drafted by the Royals in the 16th round. And so we, it was a, another unique story with that, but I got a call um, on June 7th. My mom, okay, this is pre-cell phone, right? So the phone's right. on the wall. My mom answers the phone, says, somebody from the Twin Cities, okay, which is Minneapolis, St. Paul. Right. Um, I grew up in St. Cloud, an hour north. And so um, I start talking to the guy, and it wasn't a Twins representative. It was apparently a guy from the Minneapolis Star and Tribune newspaper. So I was a little bit confused, and then I started thinking, I got a lot of college teammates that are practical <laughs> jokers. You know, but after talking for a few minutes, I realized, wow, that I got drafted. And then I said, uh, at the end of our talk, I asked him, I said, what about uh, Bob Hegman, you know, my teammate? He said, well, you know what? The Royals had already drafted him in the, earlier in the 16th round. I said, okay. And so I got off the phone. Um, the first thing I have to do is my mom said, go tell your dad. And my dad and I were, were best buddies. Uh, my dad was a uh, sports nut. Um, he was in the garden. And he wasn't in the best of health. And so I go out and hey, dad, um, I, I just got a call and I was drafted by the twins. His eyes lit up and he jumped off. I make a joke about him setting the standing long jump record, jumped <laughs> over the strawberry patch. And it was like, we made it. Not me. It was we. It was my dad and I and my family. And it was kind of cool. So, um, and that's a, a whole nother thing that, you know, was really cool for me. But I went back in the house, called my friend Bob, and I said, Bob, I got drafted by the, by the, twi or the Twins in the 16th round. And now I already knew that he was drafted. He didn't know. And so that was – I said, have you heard anything? Of course, I'm playing along, you know, because I wasn't supposed to tell anybody. And, you know, um, so he said no. Well, later that day, he uh, – it was actually pretty late at night. He said he called and the Royals representative called him and said he was drafted. And uh, so he gave, gave me a hard time because he was drafted before me anyway. So, but that's that. So Bob, Bob was my buddy and that's, uh, you know, just a good friend. Yeah. That's a, that's a great story. And I love, he, you hear so many times about uh, athletes who first thing they do is share it with their parents because they know it was a journey that they went on with their parents, you know, with, with Brady Singer, the Royals uh, first round pick after he signed his contract, he paid off his parents' house. And that <laughs> was, that was a very popular video. It's just the, you know, it, we think that baseball is, you know, it's, it's not a team sport as much as football and basketball where everything is interweaving. It's a collection of individual um, confrontations in baseball, mm -hmm. but yeah. becoming a major league baseball player is a team effort and parents play such a big role. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Now you advanced quickly through the twins farm system. Uh, you and I are the same age. Um, and so you got drafted in 1980 and by 84, you were in the uh, playing for the major league team. What was your best attribute as a major league ball player or as a ball player? Well, in general? Yeah. I, I like to think I was uh, fairly well-rounded. Um, I could run well, and I was I was really quick. Um, I played center field all of my younger, you know, high school, college days, and so I ran and I caught the ball. You know, I always made a joke: if the ball touched my glove, I caught it, and I don't know why, but I did. I caught everything, and I was a contact hitter. Um, 
I, you know, I, I put the ball in play and because I could run, it, it allowed me to get a lot of hits, get on base. Um, I don't know if that works nowadays. They don't want you to just run and make contact. They want you to hit the ball out of the ballpark. So it, I didn't really have a best, but if there was, um, it was probably the, the fact that I knew the game and could, could run, you know, and, and I was a good, I was a good center fielder. Yeah, and, and that's what I remember about watching you play is is you know what what we used to call a slap hitter or just just put the ball and and there are very few organizations in Major League Baseball that put value on that. The Royals uh, in fourteen and fifteen won a World Championship by putting the ball in play and putting. Wasn't that you know, fun to watch? Oh, it was great because the, the pressure on the defense and you know one of my favorite uh, memories of those two years and I I think it was fifteen when. Um, yeah, it was because it was against the Blue Jays when Lorenzo Cain is on first base and scores from first on a single to right mm-hmm. because, you know, Hosmer put the ball in play, mm-hmm. got it, got it to the outfield and, and Cain just ran like crazy. And, and that's a fun way of doing it. It's, it's sad that that's, you know, uh, overlooked so much. Mm-hmm. If you can't, if you can't hit the long ball, they don't really think much of you. And what goes with the long ball is too many strikeouts. So yeah. I, I appreciated uh, the style of play that you played with. What was the area that where you needed the most work? You know, um, probably probably learning um, how to be a professional player. You know, a Ooh. big league player. Um, just the in in actually the strategy of the game at that level is a little different than it was in college, and and I think that's still true today. Probably very few college coaches or, or high school coaches, I guess, because kids come out of high school, um, really understand the big league game um, and, and its strategies. You know, the, as, a, as a college kid, we go to the plate and we're just trying to hit the ball. You know, we're not thinking that, OK, what's the situation? Is there a guy on first? Is there, you know, a, just a guy on second? Nobody else. You know, there's a whole lot of things that I had to learn about that part of the game. And, um, and I, I, I guess I, I was a good student. I wanted to learn, you know, the, the more I, I knew the better, I felt I could take advantage of that and, and use it to help, help my team win, but also help me. Um, so that was the, that was the main thing. Obviously I wanted to be able to, you know, make even more better consistent contact, um, know where to play in the field according to what they wanted, you know, throwing to the right base, you know, my owner with the twins way back in those days was Calvin Griffith. Um, and he got, got kind of criticized because he wasn't, that, that was his business. It was the baseball team. He didn't have anything right. else. And, and, but a very shrewd, very smart baseball man. And one of the things he always said in doing interviews was like, it seems like, and I was part of a, a group of guys in the early eighties Kent Herbeck and Gary Gaetti and Frank Viola um, and Tim Laudner and Kirby Puckett was the one who replaced me when I left. These guys all had, it was a pretty good group. Anyway, Calvin would say, it looks and appears that these guys, they know how to play and can throw to the right base, you know, just kind of making a joke, but um, it was a big deal. And, And I think that really helped me for the little time I spent with them, but it helped me, you know, moving down the road. Does it bug you when you're watching games today when some guy tries to man up and, you know, he's standing medium depth center field and the, 
you know, the runner on second, there's two outs. She's off with the, off with the, you know, the hit. And he tries, he airmails it all the way to home instead of hitting his cutoff man. Does that bother you as a player? It drives me crazy. (laughs) I don't know what to do. And that, you know, I coached my kids when they were young and it's like, if you throw the ball over someone's head, they have no chance of catching it. If you give them a long hop, they can catch it. And it's, it was simple as that. And yeah, it, it does. There's a lot of little things. I can't really sit with people when I'm watching a game because I do, <laughs> I do make commentary on it. I got I just got to keep, keep quiet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then that makes, that makes total sense. I, I was watching recently the, the Cubs play or the, excuse me, the Pirates play against the Cubs when the third baseman threw the first baseman, pulled him off the bag. And instead of just going back and stepping on the bag, he chased the runner and, my wife loves watching games with me, but doesn't really doesn't care that much about sports and doesn't know that much about sports. She just likes the activity. Mm-hmm. So I, I was watching the replay of it and I leaned the computer over to her and I said, watch this play. And she's sitting there and she goes, well, why didn't the guy just t- touch first base? And I was like, if my <laughs> wife can figure that out. Why couldn't yeah. a major league player figure that out? It, it seems to me that we have gone farther and farther away from fundamentals to the show. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I guess my thought about that too, is that we're going to come back and realize that we need to, to do the fundamental things, right. And, you know, you, it's kind of funny because I was talking with a, a couple of parents the other night at a, at a youth game I was watching. These are like uh, 13, 14 year old boys playing a ball game. And the, the, one of the dads had a, an older son who's in college and playing summer collegiate, you know, summer league right. ball right now. And, but he's like five, nine, five, 10, and he runs really well. And so that's, that's how the, the mindset is now. It's like, he said he should have been in it. He should have played shortstop for as long as he could, because at his height, they don't even look at him. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of sad because he's a good ball player runs, you know, um, I just start to think back if I were playing now at my size and what I, I wouldn't even get looked at is what I think, you know, it's like, wow, you know, so yeah, it, it, it's it, changed. It's changed, but hopefully we'll get back and somebody, you know, maybe it's the Royals because they always seem to be ahead of the curve and everybody else catches up and then they figure out a new way to get ahead of the curve. But somebody's going to have guys that can, you know, they'll be great butters and they'll be, you know, perfect at the hit and run and they'll always hit the cutoff man and, all those things and, and they'll win based on fundamentals. So I, I think we'll eventually get back there. I hope so. All right. It's fun um, to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> now um, we talked in the introduction about the Tourette's uh, and I want to spend some time with you on that. Uh, when were you diagnosed and when did it really start to bother you as a ball player? Well, I was, wasn't diagnosed until I was 23 years old. Okay. And so I I had gone through my, my childhood, you know, high school and college and had all the symptoms and, and had, uh, you know, a, a bunch of trouble with that um, there. But the one thing it hadn't really affected me in was playing my sport and playing baseball uh, in particular. I also played hockey growing up too. And, and on whatever was in season, basically. Yeah. Well, you were from play. Minnesota. So of course you played hockey. <laughs> of course. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, I played whatever and, and, 
it, even though I had all the ticks, as we call them, and symptoms of Tourette, it didn't affect the way I played. And so um, even though I was, wasn't diagnosed till I was 23, I didn't really understand it. Um, but that's when it started to affect me was, I guess, right before I was diagnosed. I was a rookie with the twins in 1982. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm living a dream. The Metrodome had just opened in 82. I'm the leadoff hitter, the starting center fielder, you know, and I grew up an hour north and it's like crazy. Um, and I don't know when it actually started that I started becoming self-conscious of, you know, my question was, are the people watching me play to play or are they watching me because I'm making all kinds of noise and moving all over the place? You know, and so I didn't know, but I became very self-conscious. Um, I never knew how to explain to them that I've been doing this since I was five or six years old. Um, but it didn't matter. It was my own my own issue that I was dealing with. And, and so that's when it started to affect me. It didn't really affect the way I played. It affected me like in the outfield. It can be boring. You can have nothing to do. And all I can do is think about stop this, stop doing these things, stop, you know, you know, and I, I eventually get scared, you know, and it's like, okay, then um, I would start to breathe wrong. And, you know, they always said I was hyperventilating. I probably was, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just scared to death. Same things I was doing when I was eight, nine, 10 years old in that Catholic grade school classroom. You know, I didn't, I couldn't sit there. You know, I was thinking about distracting my teacher. And then when I was playing ball, I was, I was being distracted, but the best thing that could happen is if the ball was hit to me, then I could all of a sudden go get it and be okay. But I wasn't okay. And so that's when it really became um, a big issue for me. And it's like, I, I probably didn't really care too much about playing as much as I thought I did. You know, I, it's better to have health than to be able to play. Sure. And so, so is, is it fair to say that it, from a strictly, strictly from a baseball standpoint, it didn't affect you, but, but as, as Yogi Berra says, 90% of the game is half mental, <laughs> you know, the, the psychological side of it, of, of being self-conscious and, and not thinking about, you know, I need to shade this guy to the opposite field, or this guy's a fly ball hitter, or this guy you know, has, has good wheels. I've got to make sure I throw to second base. So he doesn't stretch a single to a double. You're thinking about, are people watching me with the ticks or whatever? Is that a fair way to assess it? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it totally is. Cause in the, in the past I could, even though I did these things, I could still think about what was going on in the game. And, and, you know, after I spent my time in the, in the hospitals and doctor's visits and all that, and coming back to the Royals, then I was able to actually go back to the way I wanted to do it, even though I still have the six, you know, but yeah. So that, that's a good way to describe it. Okay. So the, just talk about the trauma, the trauma that that created, and you touched on that a little bit, and then how that just basically took away the joy and you had to take two years off. Yeah. Well, um, as a kid and, you know, I, I, I said this is where I started these things and I, I grew up in a, a Catholic grade school where I had nuns for teachers and, you know, the old stereotype of a nun is old and not very nice, you know, kind of <laughs> gnarly. And, and my first grade teacher was kind of like that. Now my second and third grade teachers were totally opposite. 
they were younger, they were good looking, um, they, they were kind, it seemed like. The third grade teacher played catch with me in the playground at recess, I, you know, go figure. But I still had these, these issues and, and that's where it started. So um, my outlet was always sports, no matter what I was playing. It was an outlet I could, I could always moving, even though I did all these things, it kind of masked them a little bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, what it did was, you know, people ask, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, and, and, and I always tell them, well, you know, I'd love to be a ball player, you know, I'd, or whatever that meant, you know, a sports guy. Um, or one of my favorite things to do is I'm an outdoor person. I like to hunt and fish. Um, I went to school for wildlife management and I could have seen myself up in the north woods of Minnesota, you know, climbing in bear dens in the middle of January and testing whatever, you know, <laughs> that would be me. Um, but deep down inside of me, I just wanted to be normal. And I didn't really know what that meant. Um, what it looked like to me was my dad was very normal. He was married to my mom. I had three brothers and a sister and we did normal things, went to church on Sunday. You know, he went, took us to ball games. Um, I mowed the grass. We weeded the garden. You know, we, that's what we did. That was very normal to me. And that's, that was my dream. And so as I went on, you know, I, I played every sport and I was a decent uh, student in school. I always wish I could have done better, but I felt like I, I got distracted there too. And I, I understood, you know, um, things with school. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't sit still long enough to listen. So that went on, you know, really through my entire school years um, and even into college. The college was a little bit easier because you could pick your own seat. And, and you know, whereas in this grades, Catholic grade school, uh, Eisenreich's kind of at the top of the alphabet. Yeah. So I'm in front. I'm self-conscious of everybody watching me. Um, if I'm in the back, it's a little more relaxing. I can see really well. <laughs> I didn't have a problem with that. I could hear, but I could focus better, you know. And so, um, as as I went through all these, that was that was my my dream or my goal was to be normal. And so, when I came out of um, those games, and you know, the typical story is when we went to a series in Boston, and I came out of the games in the middle of the game, middle of an inning. You know, and did that three days in a row and, you know, eventually got um, uh, diagnosed with Tourette. Um, the, those were hard. There were some hard times. A um, lot, of, lot of things where I just, I just felt like, you know, I'm, I'm praying to God every day. And I always did anyway. I'm, I'm very much a prayer. I still do. Um, but I, I just, I asked the Lord, just please help. I have no idea why I'm doing this, and but at, but at the same time, having whatever my Catholic education gave to me, my my mom and dad um, instilled in me that it's going to be okay, you know. And deep down, my my dad's a World War II vet. I deep down, I think he was scared to death. The only thing in his life he'd ever been scared of, you know. Um, but my mom, you know, had her little book with her prayer. It, it'll be okay. You know, it's going to be okay. And that's what I believed. And that's how I, I prayed and, you know, had no idea. Um, I did not care about baseball once I was, once I left. I still love to play, but I, I would rather have had my health, yeah. you know, and had all the other questions too that a, a young person has, you know, would I be able to ever have my own family, you know, even date, I'm very shy. You know, the, the, the joke is when I speak to groups, whether they're kids or adults, you say, when I was 20 years old, 
I wouldn't have said three words in a month. And now I can't stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it it was, it all happened, you know, for a reason. And um, the good Lord was in charge. And I, I knew that, you know, Talk, talk about those two years, about the treatment and how you how you came to grips, because, uh, I mean, the story where we are in the chronology right now is promising baseball player who had to give it up because of this this ailment. But you came back and you had if, if I was an English major, but you had 15 years total and you had to step aside after two or three years. You had a long career after you came back. So talk about those two years away and, and how you overcame this? Well, um, in 1982, as I said, that was my rookie year. Um, I planned up playing about two months of the season before I came out and from those, those games in Boston. And I spent two different times in the hospital uh, trying to figure out what it is. And the kind of the joke is they're always putting me on the sixth floor, which is the mental health ward. And, you know, and, and I, I never knew how to explain to them that I did this or have been doing this since I was six or seven. And so because I'm now a big league ball player, you know, it's uh, stage fright, afraid of the crowds, afraid of this or that, and a lot of different diagnosis. Um, and, and so once sometime later in that year, I was meeting with a, a doctor and it's kind of funny because his last name was Abuzahab, Dr. Rolf Abuzahab. Um, he was of Middle Eastern descent. And this is the joke I always make, but he took me into his office and he took my blood pressure and he's looking at me and he said, I know what you have. I wrote a book about this. You have Tourette syndrome. And I didn't really, he didn't, you know, not that I hear real well but he had some broken English to his um, speaking. And I made it, I kind of thought he said tourist syndrome. Like now I'm a traveler and, and, and it's continued to be a good, pretty good joke. But, you know, after that time, I went back, researched it um, as best I could. And of course, during that time, I'm getting these well-wishing letters from everybody around the country. It was, and and a lot of them had um, miracle cure therapies for me you know, and, and everything you can imagine. Um, most of them just, you know, right to the round file, crash <laughs> yeah. can. Um, but, but some talked about nutrition. Anyway, um, after all this research that I did, it probably took me another year or two um, to really accept that, okay, this is, this is a thing, this Tourette syndrome. Um, and, and it's, I'm not the only one that has it now, I'm realizing. And, probably better yet that there is help, you know, for us. And so that was a really neat thing. And that was when I started to make the move to getting better. Um, but going to the 83 season, I came back to spring training. I wasn't ready to play. I went north with the club, played two games, and I that's when I voluntarily retired. And, and so I spent the whole year of 83 out. Um, I was back home going back to school because I hadn't finished yet. Um, I played uh, slow pitch softball during the week and in, in a couple of leagues and I played amateur baseball in between and on weekends. So I, I kept playing. I was in, I was in, you know, okay shape. Um, of course I was only 24 years old, so I wasn't very right. old yet. And so I came back in 84 to the, to the twins again. And 
again made the team and I didn't play much in the first 30 or so days. And the twins asked me to go to AAA, you know, to get some playing time. And I, I wasn't quite ready. I wasn't mentally ready to go. And I just said, I'd, I'd rather just retire again as I did. And so I, I, I left again, um, went back home and, and did the same thing, you know, back to school and taking odd jobs. Um, and at, at this point I'm still, I'm, I'm more excited to have my health than I am to go back and play ball, even though I'm still playing amateur ball and softball and, you know, whatever it is. Um, but so I, I, I was out then, but then I missed the entire 1985 and 86 seasons. I wasn't interested in coming back. Um, and, you know, I was sort of re, uh, resigned to the fact that I was probably not going to play again. And I didn't care. I was doing well. You know, I, I felt like I was I was on the move and in in getting better. And I had a little bit of a plan of what I wanted to do. And then the middle of 1986 came and you go back to my friend, Bob, who is my college teammate. Well, Bob had played seven years in the Royals minor league system. And in 1985, which is the World Series year for the Royals, he was in Omaha. He got called up here to Kansas City for four days. And what I was told was that he got to play, I thought it was third base for George for one inning. He did not get a ground ball. He never got to bat. And then after the four days, he was sent back to AAA Omaha. And so um, that was his time. And after that, he realized, okay, I'm probably not going to have a chance to make it. So he he stopped playing. He applied for the, a front office job uh, with the Royals minor leagues, uh, and he got it. And he ended up spending 16 years with the Royals, you know, as a minor league coordinator and, you know, PR guy, really, a really good guy. Um, so back to the middle of 1986, Bob calls me to check in to see how I'm doing. I said, I'm doing good, you know. Um, and one thing led to another, and I said, you know, I, I kind of like a chance to play again. And he said, really? You know, and so, you know, he's now at the Royals. He's been at the Royals, and he's in the front office. And um, so let me see what I can do. So the Royals happened to be coming to Minnesota for a series. I went down to Minneapolis and, and watched the game, and John Sherholz comes up and says, hey, Jim, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good. And he said, what's the status of your, your, your position with the twins? I said, well, I'm not just, re, you know, voluntarily retired and, and nothing happened from there. And so what needed to happen was I had to get released from the twins, which I did. And when that happens, the twins put me on waivers because the Royals won the world series in 1985. They are the last team. Yeah. to have a shot at the waiver wire. So I went through all the other teams and Royals picked me up and they had to pay the twins a dollar for, for my um, contract or whatever. And then that, that was a chance. I didn't really know if anything was going to happen, but I was invited to the big league spring training with the Royals um, down in Fort Myers in 1987. And I, I went down, I played, you know, a, a couple of weeks of the big league team. And I went, I was uh, moved to the Memphis um, double A team. And I ended up playing in Memphis for 70 games. And then um, I was called up. So the call up story is kind of cool. Cause 
Um, I'm, I, although I've kind of forgotten where your question was going. No, I, I was just talking about the, the time off. So keep going. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, that was, that's how I got back. Um, and, and my, I guess my thought in all that coming back was I would like the chance if I don't get the chance, I'm fine. If I get the chance, but don't take it, I'm not okay with that. Right. If I get the chance and play and don't make it, I'm okay with that too. But the hardest thing would be if I didn't take the chance that I had, not ever knowing in my mind if I could have played again. And so, you know, that, that's, that's what I did. I got to play and I didn't bargain for another 12 years, but, you know, I was pretty fortunate. So, yeah, now, uh, very the, cool. best, the, the best dollar the Royals ever spent for sure. So tell, tell us the call-up story from Memphis. Well, um, it, uh, Bob Schaefer was our manager in, in Memphis, and um, I had hit – I'd really hit the ball well. It, we, were only played, we only played 70 games, and I had 105 hits. And that was actually the DH because I had hurt my elbow in spring training. Mm. So I, and, and I think deep down, the Royals weren't sure if I could still play the outfield because that's where I really had my trouble with Tourette was right. – you know, between pitches, thinking and all this, you know. Um, and so as a DH, and I just hit the tar out of the ball. And so I had a call from John Bowles, who was the minor league coordinator for the Royals at the time. Um, he was right above Bob. And he says, um, well, we need to get you out of Memphis. Um, and so not sure where we're going to send you, but, you know, Omaha is is AAA. He said, I'm probably going to have um, – uh, someone else call you here in a little bit. And John Sherholtz called me. He said, where would you like to go? Would you like to go to AAA Omaha for, for a few weeks, or would you like to come here to Kansas City? That's right. That was another one of those easy questions. <laughs> I just would like to go right to Kansas City, if that's okay. Sure enough, we got off a bus one night from a trip down from Jacksonville, pulling to Memphis, and uh, it's 3.30 in the morning, and Bob Schaefer says, uh, um, Izzy, um, you're going to the big leagues. Pack your stuff and, you know, okay, you know, so there I was. Later that morning, I was on a flight coming into Kansas City and staying at the Holiday Inn across from the stadium. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it was pretty neat. That's a great story. Now, I've talked to people, um, I, or I remember when you came to the Royals and people talked about your courage. Did you feel like you were being courageous by making this comeback? <laughs> no, I never really thought of it as courage. I just thought of it as trying to live and survive. Mm -hmm. um, plus, I like to play. You know, I, I like to play, and I, I guess even more, I like to live. <laughs> so I had two of those. But not, you know, um, I didn't look at it as courage. And and I I appreciate they say that, and it's very fine. I, you know, if that helps others be able to, you know have that um, ability to go do something they don't think they could have, or, you know, get over some issue they have that then it's okay. I mean, but I didn't look at it like courage. It's just, yeah. you know, it's what I am. I'm just doing what I, what I thought I was could do. Yeah. I've covered major league baseball for years and I've, I know a lot of people who have covered it even longer than I have. Many of them say that you are one of their all time favorite players to cover. Why, why do you think that's the case? Um. And I do appreciate when they say that because it, it it's it's been very well gratifying. Um, I, I think I, I've always tried to be like a regular guy, um, and and sometimes they well go back to my Catholic grade school upbringing. 
I'm uh, I'm one of those church boys. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I haven't done any drugs. You know, I don't mess around. Um, so I was looked at as most of the older ladies said, you'd be good for my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> that was always my question. It's like, I never knew if I could ever, ever have a, uh, a relationship like that. I was too shy. And so I, because of that and, and all the things that I've learned with having Tourette, one of the biggest things I've learned is the more I've talked about it, the better it was for me. And so when I started talking to groups of kids who, you know, I, I, I can tell them exactly that I was exactly in your seat when I was eight years old, too, wondering what's wrong with me, what I'm doing, um, and wouldn't say a word. And so that's what I tell them. I say, I could have never said anything when I was your age. I was scared, I, you know, um, shy, introverted. And so I learned how to do that. And I learned how to talk to the media. Um, the, the, the funny thing, when I played with the Phillies in 1993, we had all the crazy guys, you know, John Cruck and Darren Dalton and Mitch Williams and Lane, you know, they were, they were tremendous. I was, I was the regular guy. I wouldn't even play a game. And if we'd lose, the reporters could come and talk to me and ask me the questions. Um, and, and after a while, they learned not, they learned it wasn't going to do any good to try to set me up, you know. I learned that you don't call call your teammates out in front yeah. of you know you just don't do that. Right. And you know that was goes back to the very one of the very first questions: learning the professional game. And so I, I I was pretty good about that. And I didn't you know if I screwed up, I screwed up, and I could tell them that, you know. Um, and I didn't I didn't want a lot of the credit, you know. I just it was a good game, you know. And I did okay. And if I didn't play, it's like, well, our guys tried, you know, it's one yeah. of those things. We didn't get the breaks. And anyway, so I, I think that's why, you know, a couple things I, I was able to talk with them and, and I was that, you know, so-called good boy. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, Rex Hudler talks a lot on, on the Royals broadcast about the, the most important ability a player can have is availability from a, from a reporter's perspective, knowing there's somebody in the clubhouse regardless, win or lose, whether he had a good game or not, we knew we could get an answer during the 14 and 15 years. Um, we knew no matter what, we could go to Eric Hosmer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot, there were a lot of great guys on that club, guys who were really, really fun to talk to as long as things were going well. And, and I'm not going to certainly name names, but we knew that Haas was somebody, you know, they're in the middle of a six game losing streak and we could go and get something. And it wasn't coach speak. It was, honest answers, well thought out answers. So you were that guy for, for your teams. It, and yeah, and that, that's exactly right. And so they, you know, they come in and they need a, they need a story. They need some kind of quote. Right. And I was, I was always there. I didn't look at it like that, but that's who I was. And, and I, I guess as I learned a little bit, I was kind of protecting my teammates too yeah. from themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, talk, talk about the Tony Canigliaro award and for, for, you know, you and I, as I said, we're the same age. So I remember Tony Canigliaro getting hit in the eye with a pitch and the sports illustrated cover of his, a black eye that was this big yeah. and what he overcame. How, how important is that award to you? Well, it was an honor to even be associated with, with that. And, and um, you know, I heard, I didn't really, see how when he was when he got hit 
I saw the after effects. Right. You know, I grew up in Minnesota, so we're limited to the twins. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's learning all the story and how his family was there. Um, and, and the player that they all thought he was, I mean, he, he was going to be one of the all time greats. Yeah. Um, it, it, I could see what it meant to the Boston fans, the media. I mean, he was their guy. Yeah. Um, they loved him, you know? And so I just, I felt honored just to be in the same room with those guys. It was crazy to be yeah. there, you know, cause I didn't feel like I did anything. You know, I just, I'm just playing, you know, a, a game that I love, but I guess that's the connection is that Tony was playing a game that he loved too. And, you know, um, kind of got removed from it because of being hit. It yeah. just, it was, it was very honored. I was very honored to be there. It, it, it may be revisionist history. I think it was 1967 when he got hit, but I remember thinking that the perception was if, if you, you could put him and Carl Yastrzemski on the, you know, on the same level and mm -hmm. depending on if you like right-handers or left-handers, who you'd pick. I mean, he was that highly thought of and, it, and yeah. he came back, never had the same, never had the same success uh, that he did. So unlike um, Tony Canigliaro, though, you had some of your better years late in your career when a lot of players are kind of winding down. Why do you think you had so much success after you came back? You know, I, th I think a couple of things. I, I stayed in good shape. Um, my health became a big, big issue for me. I, I learned how to eat better, take care of myself. Um, and it was always better to feel good than not to feel good. And so, um, but then I, I also felt, you know, my, my desire to learn more. When I went to the Phillies, um, you know, I played here with the Royals for six years. And George Brett, Frank White, Willie Wilson, Saberhagen, Gubazai, you know, you name all those guys and, and tremendous teammates. And I went to the Phillies, and this is the National League. So now the National League game is still different from the American League game because they didn't have the DH yet. Um, I even learned more. Larry Boa, who, you know, we called him the rat. Just little Larry, you know, is, uh, what a good coach, though. Yeah. I mean, he's aware of everything. It's kind of how I always dreamed of playing. Yeah. And so what, what I learned from playing with those guys, and we had um, – from a, from a hitting standpoint, we scored more runs than anyone in the National League. And that's because Larry Dykstra was our leadoff hitter. You know, say what you will about him, about who he is, but he was, he was a tremendous leadoff hitter, smart baseball guy. He walked 140 times or something. We had John Cruck, we had Darren Dalton and Dave Hollins. They all had 100 walks. Yeah. And so I learned that, you know, and I was batting either fifth or sixth. So I'm either protecting Darren Dalton or Dave Hollins or one of those guys, you know, and, and I have to, I have to do a good job. And I learned that I didn't need to swing at every pitch I saw. And so I started taking, taking walks too, you know, but just, just learning how to hit, learning the situation. Um, kind of, as we talked about earlier, you know, that's the part of the game I always wanted to learn. And, and boy, when I did, it was so much like the light bulb went on. It's like, there's some things that, I don't even have to be good at, and I can, I can make them work, you know? And so that, that was kind of it. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it was a tremendous, um, I guess, combination of being healthy 
and in the right situation, learning how to play. And I kept on going and, and I just, it was like the ball was a beach ball to me. Everything yeah. I swung at, I hit and, and whether I hit it hard or blooped over the third baseman's head, it was a hit. Yeah. And so it was fun. What was it about the Dodgers? Those, those statistics, uh, your career against the Dodgers. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a small sample size. It wasn't five games against the Dodgers. You had a lot of success in a lot of opportunities against the Dodgers. What, is, did you like the air in Chavez Ravine? What was it? The backdrop was it? Cause they had good pitchers during mm-hmm. that time too. I, I don't really know, but he, right. It, I, I did like Dodger stadium to hit it. Um, uh, it, for whatever reason, um, I did well, but yeah, all their pitchers, um, were, were decent pitchers. They weren't really lefties in the, in the line, in their pitching right. core. So, um, but they're good right-handers and just maybe confidence, but I did well against them in Philly too. You know, okay. when I, when they came to Philly, um, I don't know. I just, I, I know that, you know, Tano Lasorda was the manager of the Dodgers and, you know, it's kind of funny because going back to the church thing, Tommy is also a Catholic person. So whenever we were at Dodger Stadium on a Sunday morning, there would be a little chapel that would open up. A, a priest from a local Los Angeles church would come over, set up an altar. Tommy was the reader, if you understand the Catholics church at all, you know, the, and and I'd always get invited to go in. So I'd go in. Occasionally, the owner, um, um, it was Peter O'Malley would come in and the coaches and it was kind of funny, but Tommy would read and he said, occasionally, Father, can you can you ask uh, the Lord to not have Eisenreich hit so well today against us? <laughs> I don't know what the deal was, but it was, um, and, and it's always been like, that, you know, um, I just, uh, that's, that's, they'll always ask me, who is the, the pitcher you had the most success against? And I say, anyone who was wearing a Dodger uniform. That's, that's impressive. That's impressive. It was fun. Uh, now, I've been around athletes my entire life. My uncles were Major League Baseball agents uh, for years and years. Um, and, and I've known an awful lot of athletes through the years. Individual success goes a long way, but team success is really what you strive for. So talk about 93, getting to the World Series. Uh, I won't ask you about the end of the World Series, uh, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) then 97 being uh, on second base when the winning run was, when the hit that delivered the winning run uh, for the Marlins winning the World Series. Talk about your World Series experience. Um, Unbelievable. And, And 93 with the Phillies was an unbelievable run. Um, and I got to play all six games of the World Series because uh, the Blue Jays had all right-handed pitchers too. Um, it was a, an experience I, I only dreamed about, you know, and yeah. in game two, I was able to hit a home run, um, which was really exciting. Um, I didn't hit many home runs, you know, during the season. Um, 52 to be exact for all my career, and I got two bonus home runs in the World Series. But uh, the, the neat thing is um, we won that game after the game was over. This is in Toronto, so it's game two. Um, I have to do the press conference. I'm talking about the home run for maybe five minutes, and then they ask me about Tourette for the next hour. So anyway, um, you know, when we got to, got to game six, we're winning the game. We have a chance to win the, win the game six. 
go to game seven. We felt we were going to win. And, and I have to, I, I don't mind the game six thing. Cause you know, our, our guy who lives over in Leewood, you know, Joe Carter, right. You know, it's kind of funny cause like, you can't even give him a hard time because he's a good guy. If yeah. you know, yeah. uh, Joe's a really good guy and he hits the home run, you know, and so we lose and um, every, you know, it's been how long this almost, it, it's almost what? Yes. 28 20, years. Yeah. 28 years. So I see Joe at a lot of events around town. It's funny because people will come up and say, can you sign this, you know, World Series walk-off home run and blah, blah, blah. And and I'll just stand and Joe said, Joe, do they do you do this to pay these people to say that? Because you know that I'm right here. <laughs> and none of them even know that I was in right field when he hit the home run. Yeah. And I just remember running off. So anyway, it was what an experience, though, to be in a World Series. So four years later. I'm now with the Marlins and we're back in the world series and um, game three, we're in Cleveland and it's 32 degrees at game time. And it's, you know, snowed during batting practice, um, hit another home run, which was really unbelievable again. Um, and then we, you know, we win that game. We actually get back to Florida um, and we have to just win one game, you know, for the series, we lose game six in game seven, and I didn't start any of the games except I was the DH in games uh, three and four okay. in Cleveland. Um, and so I didn't start the games in Florida. Um, but as you know, we get to the this, this it's kind of I, I love telling the story too, but we get to the bottom of the ninth. Um, we are losing two to one. And we get a we get a guy on base and end up with uh, let's see one out a runner uh, Moises Alou is on third base Craig Council is our second baseman and batting in the eighth position okay and the pitcher is ninth and so our manager Jim Leland asked me to go into the on deck circle so Craig Council is up with a guy on third and one out and we're losing two to one. And, of course, he hits the sacrifice fly to right. Moiselu comes in to tie the game. And now I'm pinch hitting for the pitcher in the bottom of the ninth in game seven of the World Series. <laughs> what every kid dreams of. Two to two game. Yeah. It, and that's all I could. You know, I went from, you know, I went from uh, before Craig hit his sack fly, I went from thinking, I could strike out in the World Series. I could hit a double. I could hit into a double play. I could do this and that. I could also hit a double. We could win the World Series. I could hit a home run. I could do, you know, there's yeah. a lot of things that are going through my head. As soon as the sacrifice fly happened, I had a free at bat is what I, how I thought of it. And, um, and Jose Mesa was the Indians closer. So he's on, he's pitching. And I'm, I'm totally excited. I'm thinking he's going to throw me first pitch fastball and, and I, all I could think about was doing the Joe Carter thing four years old, earlier. And so sure enough, first pitch, a little bit of a sinker, ground ball second base, throws me out, innings over. We go to extra innings. So, And I stayed in the game at first base because in the National League, we do the double switch. Right, right. And, and so um, we don't lose the pitcher that way. Anyway, we, so I'm a, I'm a first baseman, and, and I'm literally a fish out of water at first base. But, you know, did okay. So we come up into the bottom of the 11th inning, and, and this is where it was, it was really kind of interesting. I'm coming up to bat again, 
and we have runners at second and third. And so first base is open, you know, with one out and they intentionally walk me. So when I talk to people that don't know, didn't watch or don't know, it's like, yep, uh, they, they uh, intentionally walk me in the bottom of the 11th and the seventh game of the World Series. And then I have to say, yeah, they would have walked my grandma too, you know, because that's that was what they had to do. Yeah. And so the next hitter is our our center fielder, Devon White. It's a ground ball to the second baseman. They get the force at home. So bases are still loaded. I'm on second base. And, and as you know, uh, Edgar Renteria, our shortstop, hits the base up the middle. Um, and Craig Council scores the winning run. I have to go touch third. You know, I have right. to at least go to third and touch third. And we just won the World Series. Unbelievable. That's like, and, and I, I use the, um, if you if you know the the old uh, boom boxes we have, you know, used yeah. to have, and you'd turn the volume up as high as it could go, that's what uh, the stadium felt like for an hour after that. It was unbelievable. A, a dream come true. And it, it got us this. Yeah. You know, it's like craziness. Unbelievable. Um, just one World Series. Do you, do you think you'll ever get tired of telling that story? Never. Never. <laughs> no. You, you, you know what's, what's really kind of cool, too, though, is in, in 14, the wild card game here. Yeah. Was on, I had my kid. I had three of my kids with me. I'd never seen my kids light up like they did. Yeah. The one thing I always wished is that they could have seen me play. But I, and I was older when I started having kids. So yeah. anyway, it's, it was I, the wild card game was so much fun. And if you were there, you know, it was hopping. Yeah, it was the, fun. The I will tell you that um, half of the people in the press box should have lost their credential for the rest of the postseason because you're not supposed to cheer in the press box. <laughs> but the win, it was such a beautiful evening. The windows were all open. Mm -hmm. And so when Salvi got that hit past Donaldson and Christian Cologne scored and, you know, most of the people in the press box are going, <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody could hear because the crowd was going so crazy. So yeah, I, I definitely, definitely can relate to that. Well, I want to wrap up with a couple of things, Jim, and I do appreciate your time. Just talk about what your foundation does and how much joy it brings to you to be able to help kids who deal with what you had to deal with yeah well basically that's really all we do is we just create the awareness we we become an outlet for parents to get a get an answer you know because um shortly after we started the foundation which was in 1996 and i was still playing um but i'd met with a bunch of uh groups of kids throughout that time sure. in a lot of stadiums and realizing that there's a lot of kids that are going through the same things that I did, parents have the same questions mine did, you know, and we should be able to get past that. So, so that, that was the goal was to just become an outlet, a resource to direct the families and to, to where they can go to get the answers that they're looking for and get the kids the ultimate help that they want. Um, but it, but it was also to help the education systems, you know, the, and, and I'm not a doctor, but, you know, some doctors still didn't know what Tourette was, you know, it would be labeled as ADD or ADHD or, you know, a behavior thing. 
you know, right. um, and, and so it's not always true. It's a lot not true if you, you know, come to think of it. But um, so we just became that. And and the idea was to continue to talk to kids. I just I felt obligated, but not like I was had to do it. I wanted to um, when I used to play, I wore my uniform when I talked to the groups. When I was done playing, I was in layman's clothes and I could sit at the game with them and talk. And I, I just, I, it seems like we're at another generation now of yeah. families who have kids that are, they're looking for answers. And so that's what we do. You know, last year we kind of lost a, a lot of time, a lot of, but the Zoom program has been tremendous. I was on with a few families, you know, early, early last year in the pandemic thing. And, and it was kind of neat to actually see people, you know, yeah. even though we weren't faced, we weren't, you know, within a couple uh, feet of them, you know, we had to do it over a, over a screen, but um, it's just very still gratifying. And like I said, I almost feel obligated because I was put in a position to have the trouble with it, but then also get through it from probably the best medical help in the world as you know, major league baseball has access to. Right. And so I felt very blessed and, and almost honored to be able to do that. So I feel like why shouldn't every other kid or, you know, family have the same ability to, to get the help for their kids. And so that's basically why we do it. Yeah. There was a, a family in my church and their daughter had, had Tourette's and, and I, I mean, almost every Sunday they'd come up to me and talk about something you had said or something you, <laughs> you had done that, that impacted them. So uh, I, I think it's, I think it's awesome. You know, the fact that you've, you've taken what, you know, what slowed you down and, and turned it around to, be, to do something to help other people. I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I was, I was, I always say I wasn't really born to be a ball player. I was, I was born to have Tourette and who got to play ball, you know, for the better of whatever. Yeah. So, okay. I was, well, I always like to let my guests, uh, wrap up with a couple of things. First of all, is talk about your family. I know you've got, you said you have four kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and they're, like, they're adorable. You know, my daughter is 30 years old and she was a ball player. She played college softball at Missouri state. Um, and she was the first one, you know, uh, she remembers being at the world series in 97, but she was in the playroom with the other kids, <laughs> you know? And so she still coaches, uh, my, then I have three boys. My oldest son, um, it's kind of funny because he I coached him in his first year of T-ball when he was five. He's not played a game since. And he is my my dancer, actor, singer. He's the he's the performer. And he is really good. He's in New York. Um, and he's he's actually uh, last February, uh, my wife and I got to see him and they just started the show. Um uh, <laughs> um, West Side Story. Okay. I always forget how to say it because I'm not a movie TV person. Yeah. But he's one of the characters in the West Side Story on Broadway. So we saw that late February. Of course, after two weeks, everything was shut down. Yeah. And he's, but he's been all over the place. He's really good. He, you know, sings and dances in the whole nine yards. Um, and then my, my other two, my, my next youngest son's almost 25, but, uh, he was, he was a ball player. He also did some dancing, but he's, he's 6'2", and he played college baseball and is doing really well. Um, and my youngest is just about to turn 20. And he's, he's 
he, he played ball and he's at um, uh, Truman State up in Kirksville. Okay. Good student, you know, they're all good kids and just love them to death, you know, and uh, just I, I, I wish I wish they could have seen me play. But I also wish, you know, I, I could have could have um, coached them differently because sometimes the dad coach, yeah. you know, yeah. nothing. <laughs> yeah. But no, my kids are great. I just they're tremendous. All right. And then the final question I always like to uh, ask people, and you've kind of touched on this already. You did, did right before I asked about the family question, but I like to give people a, a tee up this one. What is your legacy? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, and I, I, I never really think of that. I, I guess um, what it what it would be is that um, I'm one of those guys that has Tourette that had a lot of problems um, and I got to play baseball um, at the highest level ever. Um, and, and that's what I did. I, I don't know how else to say it. I, um, I was very blessed to have been able to do what I do in both ways, baseball and with Tourette. Um, and just, just doing what I felt I was called to do. All right. Well, that's, that's a great. Kind of it. <laughs> that's it. That, that's a great way to wrap up. Well, I do appreciate your time. Um, we'll catch you at a game at some point. I'm I'm there about a third of the time up in mm-hmm. the press box, but uh, we'll text each other. And next time you're coming, if I'm there, we'll we'll stop by and, and say hello. That sounds great. Thank All you right. for having me on. All right. Thank you, Jim. You bet. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.